0: Yeah, your mic has to work on this show.
1: I have a dream this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self evident
2: that all men
1: are created equal
2: exactly what that means in terms of fundamentally all Whether or not we just end the filibuster straight up. With all due respect, that's a much malarkey. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this (laughs) wall.
3: It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long. Peter Robinson is off. I'm James Lovitz. We talk to Matthew Contenetti of the Washington Free Beacon and Nathan Hart about free speech on campus. Let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Hey, everybody. Welcome. This is the Ricochet Podcast, and it's number 567. How do we get that far? Why? Like they say on public radio, thanks to people like you, and also people who aren't like you. Uh, whether you contribute or join or whatever, you're welcome to listen, and you're welcome to go to ricochet.com and be part of the most stimulating conversation and community on the web. Give it a shot. I'm James Lilacs in Minneapolis. Peter Robinson is off on Parents' Day for one of his kids. Um, I'm not, but I'm wearing the cap of my daughter's school in solidarity if, if I had been going to Parents' Week. Oh, yeah, I you want? I had been going to Parents' Week. We went once, which is Fine. But, you know, after three years, I think the kid is sort of like, oh, great, you're coming for Parents Week. I will cancel all my exciting plans that I had. Um, So we're fine. Uh, Rob Law, however, is either in, I don't know if you're in Alaska, Richard Branson's private island, New Orleans, New York, San Francisco, Venice. so many places. How are you doing?
0: I am here in New York City. And how is New York? I'm doing very well. It's beautiful. It's like this is exactly why New York is so, uh, uh, has so many, I don't know, fine associations it's good. not chilly but it's brisk and it's, it's the autumn and um you know it's great it's great right and you like to hear gershwin
3: playing like in the manhattan movie right that i a always orchestrated I versions always of the gershwin do. tunes but if you do you're probably thinking of the great old romantic skyscrapers of yore i saw a proposal for a building in new york first super tall for a local architectural site it was nightmarish it, it was it was a it was a fever dream. I mean, I've, most of the <laughs> most of the new buildings I see coming out of New York are either incredibly banal, the little super tall residential towers, right. or they're just unnerving. There was one that looked like a Lovecraftian horror, all black and oily. This one starts out small, and the taller it gets, the bigger it gets until the top. It's it's it, oh yeah. And yeah. It, it, just looking at a small rendering of it makes people unhappy, but they want to build that thing just to to un nerve and alienate people in perpetuity
0: just because they can. Yeah, I think that's kind of uh, uh, the the since nobody is on the street anymore. I think that's the issue, right? That used to be that you were on the street. So like if you were building a building the first thing you thought about was well, what's going to happen on the street. And everybody made fun years and years ago. I remember when I was taking architecture classes in college and um Philip Johnson built the at t building, which is then called the AT&T yes. um, Then it was the Sony building. Now it's just a big question mark building on Madison yeah. Avenue. And people made fun of it because it had a little Chippendale notch on the top and looked like a, you know. And a big yeah, Chippendale it notch. It like a high boy. What they call it a high boy, I think. Um, yep. But what they forgot was that what the benefit of that building, what made that building so great, was that the people on the street, it, it. It created a little environment on the street. Uh, there were little stores on the street. It wasn't this sort of glass tower rising right from the sidewalk. Uh, as you walked past it, you know, at eye eye height, it felt like it continu- continued Madison Avenue, and it was like, really pleasant to. It was pleasant to be a person at the foot of that building, which is not the same as you can say from a lot of these kind sort of modernist uh, uh, or even postmodernist uh, postmodernist, like uh, glass and steel mirror buildings where you don't really I – mean, I was walking up uh, um, 6th Avenue uh, yesterday, and the sun was just perfectly positioned so that it was reflecting off of um, – I think it's like the HBO building or something on um, 43rd Street. And the reflection was so powerful that I really felt like it was under a sun lamp. It was stronger than it would be un- standing in the sun. And I think this is just kind of mm-hmm. very odd behavior. They're very repellent, like you know, this giant ray coming off this, this cancer causing ray coming off of a company.
3: Well, there's a there's a bu- there's a building in London actually that is known to melt cars yeah. because the the reflection is so severe. But what you're talking about the Philip Johnson building and the rest. of them. I wouldn't say postmodern mirrored glass skyscrapers are the same yeah, thing. Right. The, the mirrored glass is late modernism. Postmodernism said we're going to play with all these shapes and do things like Philip Johnson did. And we're, we're, going, we're going to have something. We're going to have a shop on the street. Imagine right. that. Because prior to that, your old Mad Men era, no, no, no. We would give you a plaza. Here is a plaza with a piece of meaningless modern art sitting in the middle of it, like something like an excrescence dropped by some crazy dinosaur. And, and then we're going to express this. And then we're going to have some, some, some fountains that we'll play. And then you'll walk across this empty plaza into this building and then ascend upwards after you pass through the travertined, marbled, right. uh, uh, you know, lobby. No, it's, I mean, one of those is great, but a city full of them is just a is a place full of empty places. Well, Washington, D.C. avoided that, yeah. which is odd because it's not, you know, it's, it's not the most urbanistic town. But lately, I mean, high restrictions, restrictions. If you've been to D.C. De- yeah. Right, which has a tendency to compress the app, uh, the you know the economic activity. You had stuff going on at ground level a lot more, and now, for example, you've got Joe Manchin saying, "I'm getting out of this building and maybe going across the street to the others." What do you think about? What do you think of the, the possibility of that? Because we all know that Joe Manchin is the most evil yeah. man in the world who's going to destroy humanity.
0: Yeah, well, so I, I think the One is that like Joe Manchin will probably get anything he wants now. I mean, where I, were I Joe Manchin, I'd be like making a list of things. I want ice delivery. I want. You know, uh, Chuck Schumer deliver me ice every day. Uh, I, I want somebody to, I want. I, I want somebody. To, somebody from the like the progressive caucus in the House to come and, and, and collect and return my dry cleaning. I mean, the guy can get anything he wants. Um, but the second thing I think about Joe Manchin, which is, I had a long conversation about him last night with some people who I, I think I actually know him, um, is that he he's he's not he's only confusing to people if you're insane. If you're not insane, if you're not insane person. He makes total sense. Like, you, you're you not he, – he's completely fathomable. He's a <laughs> West Virginia senator. In the great tradition of West Virginia senators, we already had one of those, and it was Robert Byrd. And he's not that different Robert Byrd, kind of a mildly conservative Democrat, a partisan at some points, a lot less partisan than Robert Byrd w- was. But uh, th- th- these are not th- – you don't have to decode him. Now, Kristen Christian I think is slightly different, but you don't have to decode Joe Manchin. Um and I think that was th- that's a sign that we are in a very weird place politically, where where a, a, a extremely traditional centrist moderate, quasi-southern West Virginia is not really southern, but kind of south southern Democrat senator is just this baffling figure for people. Like, what what on earth could he be? <laughs> like, what, like my God, read a not even read a history book. Read a newspaper from nineteen eighty five. That's who he is.
3: But he's supposed to be. His type is supposed to be gone. I know. They no. were supposed right. to have won. Right. By getting rid you of Trump, win. they got rid of all right. things that are emanations of Trump and Mansion with his his hillbillies right. and his toothless meth addicts in the haulers and coal for God's sakes is a, is a, that that's just bygone stuff that shouldn't happen. And I I even think it's hilarious that cinema is anathema to them now, given that she's probably the only one who's on the vanguard of all these preference-shifting ideas, which are supposed to be everybody's new future and the rest of it. How can she? How can she turn on us? She should know. She has fluid sexual preferences. She <laughs> ought to be able to be in favor of yeah.
0: high-speed rail. I mean, so weird. It's like
3: it, That's how it works. That, that it said, I
0: have to just say. I, so yesterday, I did. Um, I had a super New York day. I went. I did uh, Gutfeld, uh in the um, late in the early evening, and then I ran off mm-hmm. to uh, this book party that a friend of mine was throwing for this uh, for a, a wonderful book by uh, Andrea Elliott, who's she's a New York Times writer, uh, and she wrote this book called Invisible Child. And the minute I walked in, they kind of ran up to me and they're like, you, "We uh, we really want you to read this book." And and she was telling me about the book, and the book is really you know heartbreaking, interesting. Um, and she sort of embeds herself in a family in New York City, sort of falling apart and coming back together. Um, and uh, she, I, 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 I don't know, she did not say this to me, but uh, it was implied later around that there has been some pushback from progressives about this book. Um. And you know she kind of implied, you know, she just had to tell the truth and say what was going on in in real life. Uh, and so I would say that that it, while it is, uh, I understand people when they hear, oh, this book's written by a New York Times writer, not interested. Uh, I know what it's going to be. Yeah, this one I think. I mean, I haven't really finished it yet. I just got it last night. Um, this one, I think, is going to be different, and so I, I feel like what we need to look at is, as pe- certainly people on the center right, but mostly on the right, are, the, are green shoots, right? I mean, you know, Peter's not here to interrupt yes. us. But I think we need to look for uh, signs of hope, and this is one of them. Um, and I think another one mm-hmm. might be. Um, <laughs> Uh, Joe Manchin's incredible wish list, his Amazon wish list, which will all come true. Uh, And I think for some, for for those of us who love American politics and actually think that even when we think it's broken, it's working. That's what working is. Um, uh, These are, this is good times. It's autumn. The leaves are falling. It's beautiful. This is, uh, we have a vaccine. Uh, We should be celebrating. If no one else will come to this party, uh, we should come to this party.
3: Well, I am, but I have to ask you about this yeah. book. Are you saying that there's pushback about this book from uh, from where, the left? I think I think it's, I think it's from now.
0: Again, I'm talking right. out of turn. I really don't know because I haven't read it, and it was all elliptical. You know the kind of thing people say in parties. But I, I, the, the, um, the eagerness at a Manhattan book party, which with I was introduced and spoken to and talked to, <laughs> uh, as a sort of having just come from Fox News, uh, suggests to oh, me that they're. That um, you know, I mean, I, I I hate doing this, but like, if if the progressive left has got a problem with this book, I want to read it.
3: Signs of hope yeah. for Rob. Bond, yeah. He's <laughs> being invited to more. Yeah. New York is so depopulated that they're actually saying oh, we're going to have to get some conservatives in here. I'll tell you this: there was yeah. something I saw on Twitter the other day, and again, I saw this on Twitter. Must be true, but, uh, bear, bear me out. It was a uh, a piece I believe from the New Yorker discussing how someone had written a novel. uh Oh, because if you're going to do that, you have to stay in your lane. Right? You can't begin to presume the experiences of others. So she wrote a novel about a woman who had who had masqueraded as a man in the I believe in the 19th century in order to go to medical school. Uh, And I think there are actual examples of this, but she wrote a fictionalized version of it. It immediately got pushback from the noisy 0.003% in the company who said that it was an objectionable book because the person, the author, had not made the woman explicitly transgender. (laughs) In other words, it wasn't about that, even though it wasn't about that any more than me going to a Halloween party dressed as Peter Korten from Fritz Lang's M means that I am then a homicide That's a deep cut, my friend. That was
0: a nice deep cut. In fact, (laughs) fact, using the character's name was pretty amazing.
3: Well, it, 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 I don't think they ever actually named him Peter Corton, but it was based on Peter All right, well, the, Still, you know, in a
0: deeper cut, yeah. I, I would, I would yeah. actually say, like, so the, I, the, I, the, since we're talking about this wokeness thing, that because um, I know we haven't, I don't think we talked about the Chappelle, uh, Dave Chappelle special, which is probably boring. That's what, okay, that's okay. What I was, but I, I know we couldn't talk about it with Peter here because Peter wouldn't see it or wouldn't watch it or wouldn't know how to turn Netflix on or would be. Um, I mean, it is some there's some salty language, James. That's good lord! You wouldn't know how to turn. Netflix well, you know what I mean. On. Going the founders away. Uh, the well, you know what I mean. I'm sure a he's got a little,
3: ca- little bit catty. He,
0: he, he sake, calls so. the Genius Bar when he has to turn Netflix on, or one of his kids, which is sort of the same thing. Um, Older Frisky's yeah. the little fellow here. Okay, go. I on. mean, what? So, what so wait, what podcast is a, this? Five hundred is five hundred sixty-seven. Is that what it is? Okay, yes. so it's yes. the, this. There, there are five hundred sixty-six times. That you and I have been here. Well, Peter's been. St- mouth- I can't. I can't hear anything. Wait. You know what I mean? So I don't think I'm. Out, I don't think I'm out of line here. I, I, I would say so. The, the the thing about the Chappelle show, and I I said this last night, and I think uh, because it acc- suddenly occurred to me last night, um, I got a very funny text from a friend of mine who is doing um, work has uh, a project at, at Netflix. <laughs> he said, you know, the, you know, Netflix employees stage some some Netflix employees, some tiny tiny fraction of them staged a walkout. Right. And uh, he said um, uh, he couldn't get uh, – he was had a meeting with one of the executives, and he couldn't because she had uh, stayed – she had been part of the walkout. But she works at home. So she just walked out of her house, I guess, to the sidewalk and stood there for a little bit <laughs> in protest. And like, he's like, well, why can't you just bring your phone out there? Like, it is, we're just going to be talking anyway. Um, but I would say that, and I, I think this is true: is that I mean, if you haven't seen it, look, the, the 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 controversy is that he said uh, unkind, or sharp, or dismissive, or insulting things about uh, trans people. And um, I, I, I don't know. I guess you could say that. I, I think insulting, you could definitely say. But that's, you know, it's comedy. That's okay. Um, but he told a story, kind of a moving story, about a friend of his, a young, aspiring comedian, not, yeah, I don't think she was young, aspiring trans comedian, trans female, and that yeah, she was his friend and that they will work together. And I won't give it away. It has a very sort of tragic ending that's um, uh, very moving when he tells it. Um, and I said last night, and I really think this is true, that trans people who are in favor of trans rights and wider trans acceptance should be cheering this, not, not just even being indifferent to it. He told a powerful story about a specific person, and that is how you actually move people, and that's how you move um, your movement. It's like you get people to understand that it's a story. Uh, It isn't just um, a bunch of black people arguing about – demanding civil rights. It's Rosa Parks. This woman was – they made her sit in the back of the bus. That's how you you move people, and so it's so – Ask backwards or bass backwards, I guess you should say, the idea that this is something you want to suppress, whereas this is actually something you should celebrate. Uh, and I, so I find biz- oh, another yeah. sign that, that, that the progressive left has gone bananas. They don't even take yes for an answer.
3: And that strikes everybody else as complete bizarre behavior, because if you watch the, the the Chappelle thing, when he makes fun of somebody, when he makes fun of somebody, when he say I'm looking out for the knuckles and the Adam's apples, uh, yeah, it's an insult. But <laughs> it's funny, if, yeah. if, if you if you if you laugh at the joke that he makes about one group, you have to know that your turn at the wheel is coming, and it always will. Um, and that's part of comedy. I mean, you could never. There's a million routines from all the comedians that supposedly the left uh, adores that would never be permitted today because they're insufficiently respectful. So Rob's right. I, I mean, you would think that they'd be happy saying, "All right, look, we're in the conversation now. We're being granted humanity by these stories and the rest of us." All oh, the correct. You know, the humanity is not his to grant. But maybe people will hear this story and think differently. No, they have to fixate on the one thing which suggests. That somebody yeah. isn't completely endorsing and clapping and, 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 uh, and accepting of the whole thing. That there's room to be made for jostling yeah. fiction and the humor that comes from it. When you had the variety story about the guy who supposedly went and confronted them and yeah. swore at them when he was just yeah. a genial big walrus of a guy who had his sign destroyed, what, what, the, the, the variety piece is so intent on cosseting up to the people that they feel that they absolutely have to get their arms around because otherwise they'll be canceled. The Variety was such a piece of dishonesty that they said that the big, big tubby guy was shouting curses when the truth of what that story was and the thing that ought to scare everybody and open up their eyes was the nutcase with the tambourine shouting, repent, (laughs) repent. (laughs) Because the fact that this guy was saying that Dave Chappelle is funny and has the right to tell stories is Right. Uh, it's an absolute minority, but the more everybody caters, suddenly it's the Westboro Baptist
0: Church, but it's there, there on the trans. Right. Side. They have
3: all. Be- uh, I, I thought I, have, I watched that thing. I thought it was
0: kind of funny. The guy, the poor little guy with his, uh, you know, big guy. He he, he actually. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say this, but I for a minute, I thought maybe he's trans too. Because, like, at a certain point, everybody, like in most trans events, everybody kind of looks trans because they're all, mm. you know. But the second thing about it, I say with Dave Chappelle is that, like. You know, he had a, a couple of really funny jokes and a couple of really strong positions, like a very interesting like one that I really laughed at was when he said, someone, when he made some jokes in the last special, and someone came up to him and said, Listen, you know, they're after you. And he said, One they or a lot of they, which made me laugh. And then I think a very cutting joke, he said, like, uh, uh, um, Caitlyn Jenner won the, uh, an award for Woman of the Year. The first year, she was a woman, which I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I, I think it is a little weird. She didn't have to do any of the things that women have to do or put up with any of the things that women have to put up with to, in order to get the award. She just had to suddenly declare herself a woman. So she's had this a huge career as an athlete and a gold medalist, and now she can be woman of the year. Yeah, I mean, if I was a feminist or a woman, I would be thinking, like, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute.
3: Right, especially if you're somebody who, you know, in middle age has been dealing with raising the kids and the rest of it, the housework, and you're just absolutely, you're just tired in a way that uh, women seem to be tired. House men work. Don't. Speaking of which. Well, as we age, the fatigue and the lack of endurance we feel can't always be fixed with more and more caffeine. Oh, you love the jolt, but it doesn't work. So we're introducing a new way to start your day. Super Beats Heart Chews from Human N. They are a tasty treat. They give you the energy you need without the trade-offs to your long-term health. No more afternoon coffees, energy drinks, and candy for a quick pick-me-up No. Add two delicious plant-based Super Beats Heart Chews to your morning routine and promote heart-healthy energy for your whole day without a caffeine crash. Superbeats Heart Shoes unique clinically researched grapeseed extract, promote heart-healthy energy and normal blood pressure as part of a healthy lifestyle. It'll give you the lifts you need to not only get through the day, but to provide that extra oomph that's been missing. And even for those of you who take pride in your good habits, well, keep in mind that the grapeseed extract used in superbeats heart shoes has been clinically shown to be two times as effective as supporting normal blood pressure as a healthy lifestyle alone. So do more for your health and your heart and treat yourself with Superbeats Heart Chews. Join over 1 million customers and get free shipping and returns, a 90-day money-back guarantee. And right now, you can get a free 30-day supply with your first purchase of superbeats.com slash ricochet. That's 30-day supply, free, with your first purchase at superbeats.com slash ricochet. We thank Human N and their Superbeats for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome back to the podcast Matthew Conanetti Senior Fellow of the American Enterprise Institute, and he was the founding editor and editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon, contributing editor and National Review, hurrah, and a columnist for Commentary Magazine, and his writing has appeared in countless, innumerable, infinite numbers of other publications. Thanks for joining us here, Matt, today. Uh, so your latest piece, uh, give us a give us a praise of what it's about, and then I can pretend to have read it and I can ask you piercing <laughs> questions and make <laughs> it sound like I have an insight.
1: Uh, well, look, uh, uh, hi, guys. I have two pieces out there at the moment. One's in commentary. It's all about the uh, kind of pathetic uh, excuses and lame spin the Biden administration is putting out there to um, kind of evade the uh, reality of the crises they're facing, you know, saying that um, the border crisis isn't a crisis or that inflation is temporary or that Afghanistan was a fantastic success or that the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill actually cost zero dollars. That's one piece I have out there, and then today in a free beacon, uh, freebeacon.com, I have my weekly column that shows up in National Review over the weekend, where I kind of say, you know, the, one of the problems in America today is it. We used to have one counterculture, uh, the kind of the, the hippie right. counterculture of the 1960s, and now we have two. We have we have a left right. counterculture, the woke counterculture, but we also have the counterculture of the right, kind of the uh, far far right MAGA. January 6th, you know, Hugo Chavez uh, stole the machines, um, that type of counterculture. Uh, you know, uh, Victor Orban is a model for American democracy. And so this is a unique situation. Uh, and the people who are actually like mainstream America or, you know, if they, the parts that they don't like they think are, uh, it can be reformed or improved or ameliorated, uh, we need to think seriously about how we, we face not one but two countercultures.
0: Well, let
3: me stop you right there. Uh, <laughs> let's, compare the, let's compare the influence of the far-right counterculture to the influence of the far-left. Can you see anybody at Netflix ever issuing an apology, anybody at the Ford Foundation or NBC or any one of the institutions issuing an apology to the far-right because somebody on Twitter came up with an af- uh, you know a, a grievous offense? as opposed to the far left, which seems to dominate and shape the way we talk now when a small percentage said that they are, they are
1: infuriated. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there are a variety of institutions in America, uh, and some of them are dominated by the left counterculture. Um, and so uh, the, what you're discussing about Netflix and such, I mean, it's ridiculous um, and awful. Um, there are plenty of institutions, uh, uh, mainly political ones, that are dominated by the right counterculture. And so we have this weird situation where both the right and the left think that they're losing. Um, The left thinks that they're losing politically and that democracy is on the verge of collapse. The right thinks they're losing culturally and that America's society is on the verge of collapse. What I'm trying to say is that we need to um, uh, find some ground uh, or hold on to Hmm. some ground where neither of those things can happen. And that means that means opposing uh, the worst excesses of both the left and the right.
3: I agree, but what what are those right wing institutions? Sorry, Rob, I'm just curious. I mean I, I see much more power cultural power concentrated in the left than I do possibly on the right. What, okay, what well, think
1: about the political institutions that are you know are going through the uh, farcical audits of the twenty twenty results at the state level. Um, think about Um, uh, Republican governors intruding on the private sector and local control to fundamentally conservative concepts to ban um, vaccine or mask mandates. Um, Think about um, the the quackery that's spreading on uh, social media on the right uh, uh, when it comes to uh, how to approach COVID, the idea that somehow COVID is something you want to catch uh, or that it's good to die from COVID. Um uh, Who's so, that? Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. There's wait, an article in the Federalist that said, uh, "I welcome you know, the, if you die from COVID, that's we have as Christians, we just have to accept that's the way it is." That that was Federalist. Um, so I, I think you can look at conservative institutions. There're not as many of them, right, uh, as there are left institutions. But of course, that's always been the right. case. Um, and, and so uh, it, it's navigating between the two. Is the challenge of of, the, of our time and, and what happened though? I mean,
0: you know, it used to be. I mean, I'm now I'm sounding like an old man here, but it used to be like you could you could reliably you could it, the, the the lines were um, certainly when I was in college. Now uh, the, everything about America is bad from the left. It's bad. The history's bad. The present's bad. The future's going to be bad because the company corporations are going to take over and watch the oceans rise. Uh, everything's bad. Uh, and then conservatives, moderates, even were like, "Well, I mean, I mean so, yeah, some things were not great, and then but everything's pretty good, and like it's uh, well, the future's really bright." And uh, you know, they people kind of thought, "Oh, you know, the conservatives, the, the, the rose, everybody complained." Re- Reagan saw things through rose-tinted glasses. No liberal has ever seen anything through rose-tinted glasses. And I guess my concern is that now, what that I think looking at things through with rose-tinted glasses is often more accurate. Been looking at things with your, you know, your ideological spectacles on, and I mean, I say this all the time, and I'm going to say it to you because I want to hear you answer and tell me if I'm full of it. Um, why, why on the right? Why aren't we celebrating this vaccine as a triumph of free market American know-how capitalism? It, you know, the, the let's be honest: the vaccine was invented in a lab in China, and it was solved and mitigated by. American entrepreneurial capitalism in New Jersey, big pharma. And there should be a ticker tape parade and all the big pharma executives should be going down Broadway and we should be throwing confetti on them like they were uh, the heroes that they are. And the right is sort of like, oh, wow, we don't know what to do. I have a friend of mine who's posits this horrible, horrible, very reductive, but interesting suggestion. Um, Chinese virus quashed by American scientific know-how and capitalism America uh, and the problem is a lot of Republicans don't like science and Democrats don't like America so oh, you were bringing yeah. a tear to
1: my eye with that when you said that was very, well, very can like I what's the, the problem to... like aren't we supposed to be the
0: ones who say you know what this is things are like, leave it to pe- 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 this is fine this is actually no one's suggesting we won't have a virus but
1: yeah. Well, um, so, yeah, I think there are a few things at work. I mean, one is just rank partisanship, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if uh, Trump was in office, he'd be taking credit for the vaccine, and uh, you'd have the Kamala Harris's of the world, as she kind of telegraphed before the election, saying, well, I don't know, it's a Trump vaccine, right. I don't know if I want to take it. So it is just rank, there is just, on one level, is just partisanship. But there are some other things happening. Uh, one of them is the, uh, um, the anti-elitism, Uh, That has uh, always been an undercurrent uh, on the American right and American conservatism. And to the degree that that conservatism has been populist, uh, there has been a suspicion of expert authority, um, often justified, a suspicion of elites often justified. And that's carried Mm -hmm. over into um, the, the coronavirus. And you know what? Uh, Fauci and Walensky have given the right plenty to be skeptical about Uh, their guidance has gone back and forth Uh, you see um, cases of hypocrisy regarding masks and somehow that um, bleeds over into suspicion of uh, the vaccine and the the third thing that's happening is changing media environments you know there is an anti-vax movement that was already pretty prevalent in the United States prior to the coronavirus um, but it seems to have taken... Uh, that was mostly uh, the, um, on the
0: left, I gotta say.
1: Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was, exactly. But it seems to have kind of reached out and adopted parts of the right um, uh, in the past year, uh, uh, or the past, you know, since we've had a vaccine, since January. And I think that's a function of, um, one, uh, social media, uh, you know, things travel uh, virally now. Um, uh, it's hard to combat uh, mist- mistruths. Uh, and two... You know, to to make your name these days, you don't need a broad audience. You need a deep right. audience. And the the anti-vax movement, uh, right and left, that's a deep. audience. Yeah, they I mean, really care three, about two, three million that, people you know, on your side is a lot in America right, right now. Exactly, that, and so that, I think that's powerful. All right,
0: momentum. so um, so just my politics for a minute. But I'm sorry, James, you want to jump? jump yeah. in? Well,
1: uh,
3: just this: when you mentioned the distrust of the elite. Yeah, that's true, but not all. I mean, the, the elite that we seem to be distrusting are the one are the bureaucratic, technocratic elements that have sort of somehow got to a position of power and authority. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, guys who did, made things, built things, created things. We have no trouble, you know, giving the tip of the hat to those elites. It's the ones who j- seem to have inherited this institutional power over our lives that we're supposed to respect. It's a good thing that we're distrustful of the entire managerial technocratic class, isn't it? out with them find us somebody competent if we've seen anything in the last year it's that our institutions are not particularly competent and seem to be making stuff in the go as, as they're going along
1: no right? i i think that's true but i also think that um the it's not for some parts of the right um the the you know some parts of the you know the trumpy uh, right national populist right whatever you want to call it that that suspicion of elites carries over into the business sector as well and mm-hmm. um, and the corporate sector as well and everybody I saw some tweet from from that corner of the right wing universe that's referred to the Woke science corporate regime we live under. So you know, okay, whoa, you know, I mean, right? Uh, but
3: you know, but, but they're not in Congress. They're not in Congress. They're not in government. They're not. They're, they're not right now in a position to do anything. Whereas distrust of the corporate elite and a desire to remo- take all of their property and transfer it to government is in Congress. It is AOC. It is the new left. It's, it's got far more juice, it seems, than somebody running on uh, Twitter. Right.
1: Yeah, I don't think that they think that they necessarily have a lot of juice right now. When you look, when you look at what's happening in Congress, but um, and and you know, uh, the, the Republicans did run the 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 White House just a year ago, and there too the suspicion, weirdly, the right. the suspicion of elites was coming from the, the actual elite uh, in charge. Um, and
0: also so, they won. Uh, I mean, I, they, I, they won. the yeah. solution of that is to win. Um, so, but can I just talk about politics for a minute? The winning part. But um, when, uh, uh, when Democrats take over – all my Republican friends, when Democrats take over the House the Senate, the one thing they say is, <laughs> don't worry. They'll overstep, and then we'll get them back, right? They'll overstep. And the one thing my Democrat friends always say, when Republicans take over, is, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna go too far, and we'll get the House back and the Senate back. And I always kind of roll my eyes. But so far, that is the strategy. Right. The strategy for (laughs) each party is to let the other party be itself for a while, for two years and do nothing or do something or say something and then take it back. And then they go. The the fundamental given, philosophical given, is that the other side's nuts and that their opinion is that that, the other side is nuts and they're both right. It does seem like this is a market failure. Ideologically, politically, this does the, the current American politics suggest that Milton Friedman's wrong. That the market doesn't work does the market
1: work the uh the political market is producing um uh, unstable majorities and uh what and it's it's not working for i think americans who are independents or uh you know the suburb the fabled suburban moderates that everyone's talking about for this reason um you know since the 1992 we've been extremely closely divided uh, as a nation Um, And those differences are, you know, I mean, they're they're go to not only the ways in which we think, but now where we live um, or how we what level of education we've obtained. And uh, and because of the narrow um, band within which elections are decided, uh, you know, you, you get a majority coming in who always again and again. Mistake their electoral victory for an ideological right. mandate. Right, mean, but it's such <laughs> so, a strange thing. Right. And and so,
0: at, at no point in American politics have you ever, has that ever occurred. It's always been, you you now have the right to sit at the table and deal. You now have the right to make a, a sausage that's got slightly more of your stuff in it than the other guy's stuff. But you never, no one's ever, no one ever. You don't win in American politics. You just get a slightly louder megaphone, but you don't win. The the, the the design is that now you, you you have a you have a ticket into the octagon that's about it why is that so hard for people to sort of
1: well it's because i think um you know uh, the, the the political class uh do believe in the idea of winning and that you know uh, they're going to um, they have the answers right. to, to the, uh, the problems facing the country. They don't have to compromise. Right. We'll get in, we'll impose our agenda, and this will solve things. The the bulk of the country, though, is not ideological right. at all. Uh, they don't think like that. And so they just happen to vote, you know, for the candidate, for, well, right. one, the party I mean, that that's they we have- like, or two, the candidate who they think is better. And then all of a sudden they see them do this ideological stuff that they don't like. And they... They send them out. The I mean, next, you're, <laughs> you're you're election. younger than me, but
0: I, uh, for most of my younger, uh, 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 up till I think uh, really up until college, I think um, there was a Speaker of the House. There was one Speaker of the House. There was that guy, and he was there before Reagan, and I think he was there after Reagan. I uh, maybe not. I can't remember when he died, but he was there. He was the Speaker of the House. He was he was another executive in the government. It felt like. And now – I don't know how – I mean I can keep trying – I try to make – I was on a walk yesterday, and I was trying to add them all up. I'm like I can't even remember because Pelosi was twice or three times. But like yeah. like back and forth yeah. and back and what? forth and back and forth. This is the volatility in American politics seems to be suggesting that the voters are trying to get the attention of their the, – the voters are trying to have a conversation with you, with the politicians. And the politicians are not doing it because they kind of think if we're – if we got two – well, this is the argument behind Bill – Build back better. Right. Let's do it all now. Let's do it all fast. Let's get it all done before we're
1: fired. Right. Well, that's actually the worst possible outcome, which is to get to the point where you think, well, you know, screw right. the voters. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> we're going to lose anyway. So, well, the Democrats have been acting yeah. like it. I mean, I think yes. you, I, I think there is something uh, to the way that Biden kind of sees his his position as, uh, well, at most, I'm going to have four years. Really, with this Congress, I'm gonna have two. So let's try to do whatever we can. Um, that that is bad because you're not responsive to the voters, and that just that just creates this uh, cycle that I'm discussing about uh, anti-elitism, suspicion of authority, often healthy impulses, but then can, but can often also be yeah. radicalized, uh, and 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 so you you're in this doom loop. Um, uh, when I think what's important is, I just wish that um, candidates would listen less to, A, social media, B, the interest groups, though they're, the interest groups are important, no doubt, but but they need to listen more to C, which is the middle. And, and, and uh, we're not uh, – the uh, incentive structure is not aligned for that to happen. Okay, speaking of the middle, um, yep. Virginia. Right now,
0: depending on yeah. – Depending on what side you're on, and who wins? It's a bellwether state, right? So if Youngkin wins, Democrat uh, Republicans can say it's a bellwether state. This is the indication. And if uh, Terry McAuliffe wins, the Democrats gonna see our agenda still is popular. Um, for some reason, Virginia just became important at a certain point, but it's important now. It's a, it says something, right? Um, are the Youngkin supporters, the Republican chal- the Republican candidate, are they de- are they delusional in thinking that he? really could easily win, or not easily, but he could win? Or is it like one more of these cases where, um, you know what, it's Virginia, McCullough's got a, 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 an organization there, he's going to overcome his recent missteps, and he'll be the governor. I mean, what do you, what's your sense of that?
1: Well, he's definitely not overcoming his missteps. I think mean, uh, McAuliffe uh, does not look like the same chairman of who won um, uh, the, the gubernatorial race uh, in, right. in 2013. Um, no, I, I think Youngkin has a shot. I think this is a toss-up election. Um, and uh, why does he have a shot? Well, one one is his opponent. McAuliffe is a retread. Um, uh, he's not forward-looking. He's right. backward-looking. Um, and he, he's approaching this race with a sense of entitlement, like, you know, of course you have to elect me governor so I can run for president in 2024, right? And voters don't right. like that. Uh, another reason is uh, the education issue. That seems is to be clearly huge, emerged. right?
0: Did that turn the it – It's huge.
1: Yes. I, I think the comment that McAuliffe made in the September 28th debate where he said offhandedly, I don't think parents should have a role in what teachers teach <laughs> – that
0: made have been his in the campaign most... room watching this debate well, and he said it. He's been, like, oh man oh. I mean, it's, if, a bit, it's, it's a bit elitist yeah,
3: to yeah like
1: and that. he shrugged what? it off at first but then you know he's now unleashed this new 60 second spot uh, where he's talking direct to the camera and saying I want you to hear it from me because Glenn Young took my words out of context <laughs> you can't take the words out of context it's a video recording you know, it's on tape Uh so, so I think education uh, is is helping youngkin. Uh, the third but education thing is, represents uh, something else, totally,
0: right? Doesn't it? Doesn't isn't it emblematic of something?
1: It represents the yes. kind of the the, the degree of uh, alienation wow. of kind of the democratic uh, woke uh, elite from, as I've been saying, ordinary people who think that you know students go to learn the basics and not. Uh, that they should feel shame uh, depending on the color of their skin, or that uh, they should be re-educated into the niceties of transgenderism. So yeah, that that, that does stand in for something. And finally, sure. th- I'd say the third thing is voters are tired. Yeah. Um, that um, that they uh, people, you know, they in Virginia especially, Biden won Virginia by about ten points. They they moved on masse to uh, defeat Trump, and now they're being asked again to go up against to to. This guy, Glenn Youngkin, who is not Trump, who seems you know friendly, uh, is running a positive campaign, and it's not, is not scary. So it's hard, it's hard for them to be motivated. And the last time Republicans won statewide in Virginia was Bob McDonnell in 2009. It was the same yeah. thing. There was a huge drop-off uh, among Democrats and in northern Virginia between the Obama election and the O'Donnell uh, election. And um, I think something might happen. Uh, this year, too. Uh,
3: I. Well, we'll see where that middle resides. Yeah. I mean, you said we have to appeal to the middle. You're absolutely right. But th- what defines the middle keeps shifting, and it keeps moving ever and ever leftwards. I had a conversation with a mayoral candidate here in Minneapolis where public safety is big, big thing on the ballot. Yeah. We tried to figure out whether or not to completely reconfigure our police force. And- the crime is through the roof, the carjacks, the murders, it's awful. He was telling me that his plans to increase public safety, which involved more police and involved more support of the police. But he prefaced everything by re- reassuring me that he voted for Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> At which point I wanted to do the old Bugs Bunny thing. You know, he don't know me very well, do he? Because he thought that because I worked for the newspaper, obviously I was going to come marching out singing the Bernie and the Elizabeth Warren songs with. <laughs> that isn't the case. He had to reassure the the moderate Minnesotans that he's a confiscatory status leftist. I mean, so that's where right. the middle has moved over here. God. i mean, i know, was just more. gonna I just gonna say like
0: uh, we uh, we know we we, we mentioned in the past in washington Free Beacon. you guys are doing incredible stuff really great like expose i don't I mean i just want to remind everybody that uh uh for your daily jolt of you know i don't know I, I'm, I, red meat is not the right word what what like it's a it's a fun interesting exciting writing reporting from a different perspective but uh uh what what's coming up do you want to just uh any you're really excited? Oh, well, about I, you know
1: I, uh, I, I think uh, our, our, the writer Aaron Stabariam is a young writer. He's been doing. He's been covering basically the woke beat for Free <laughs> Beacon, and he really broke this story, this incredible story out of Yale right. Law School about a student getting uh, disciplined for, um, uh, for literally a party invitation he sent out, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's it's gotten a lot of coverage. Um, uh, the Atlantic just wrote a follow-up. The Yale Law School has kind of been twisted into pretzels because of the Free Beacon reporting. So uh, I'm excited about that story, and I think uh, I think there will be more to come uh, like that. We also had another good scoop by a writer named Chuck Ross uh, that basically showed that the Biden administration, the White House, knew about that ridiculous letter that Merrick Garland. Uh, sent out saying that the Justice right. Department would, uh, you know, investigate all all the security risks uh, to um, to the local school boards and school officials. Um, <laughs> and uh, that just shows that there's some political coordination going on between <laughs> uh, the seemingly, you know, the independent yeah. justice, the supposedly independent Justice Department and the Biden- Investigate
0: all those uh, security those, risks, including those awful parents who found out, what the school yeah, I know. <laughs> about
3: The assault, yes. Well, yeah, you or wait. the assault in right. Loudon County. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. NPR NPR did a story on this, on the rising threat of violence at school board meetings, and they talked about how the Proud Boys were lending assistance to parents. And it made it sound <laughs> as if there's this network of Proud Boys out there who've just, you know, this like a spider right. web of, made of iron spread. You know, I don't really see the Proud Boys as the kind of guys sitting down and saying, "How can we establish a, a, a nationwide system for disseminating information about correct educational policies?" Uh, no, what it is is a few of them show up because they don't like the mask and the right. vaccines, and they rap and they rape. But NPR sort of made it sound as if the Proud Boys, who, January sixth, uh, you know, are cadre, are cadre-like, are, are, are like the old Communist Party in their <laughs> discipline and order. Uh, have linked together and to do isn't this, it just a case again makes, yeah. makes but no, wait a minute rob i mean this goes with biden saying that the greatest threat the nation has is domestic white terrorism right that that's that's the biggest terrorist threat that we face which is preposterous but again it makes it wants to elevate the the, the january 6th
0: crowd into this existential threat which seems a bit uh, so if uh, okay, you have another minute, I'm, I'm going to, I I'm guess, 50,000 foot, project yourself into 10, 15 years from now. Um, how transformative, in all of its ways, cultural ways, the way we think about it. I mean, one of the things that's happening in school boards is that parents are home and they're watching, they're actually listening to school. They're listening to all that stuff. Uh, how transformative do you think COVID, the experience of COVID is going to be? Is it uh, is it at the World War II level? Because I think it's at the World War II level of cultural and national change. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I wrote something for Politico at the outset of the pandemic where I said it's is a paradigm shift, and we're going to be living with the consequences of COVID for for a long time to come. And. You know, uh, six months later or so, I was thinking, oh, maybe I was wrong. But, you know, as we go into the second uh, and third year of the pandemic and people are still wearing masks and the CDC right. is still exercising, authority, saying that, well, even if you're vaccinated, you have to wear masks and um, the, the pol- not only the politics of it, but also the effects on the global economy. Right. right? The, to the degree that the, sh- the supply chain uh, shortages are causing or contributing to rather the inflation. Um, the political fallout with our relationship with China. No, I, I, I've always thought it, it, it accelerated a lot of things that were happening. And, um, and we, as long as we don't come to the point where we finally accept the fact that it's not going away and that if you're vaccinated, you're going to survive the right. disease, so you should get vaccinated. So hence, let's get back to life. Right. As, as we lived it before. unless Until we reach that point, um, the, the virus is just going to wreak ha- havoc on our society, our politics, and our economy.
3: Uh, but there were people who don't want to get back to the way it was before. It was either wasteful, it was consumerist, it was capitalistic, it right. destroyed I work, liked it. And it was on stolen land. And we had all the all the people who had to go to the office who you know ours saying, I like to stay at home. <laughs> That's going to happen. It is the rise of the introvert and the laptop class. Matt, i got to thank you for wearing a tie to this, because usually we don't see people who actually dress like uh-huh. an adult. For you, guys, uh, very well, for you guys,
1: I had to. So,
3: so we appreciate sharp, it. Matt up. Contineni, you can catch them all over the place. Check the links at Ricochet. Watch your free beacon. and Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you down the road. You know, one of the uh, things, of course, that people miss um, about the pandemic is it's going to stand in line at the post office, right? Mm, no, I don't think so. If you're putting in a lot of time at your small business, you do not want to spend a lot of time at the post office. The lines are long, and you could be doing other stuff. You've always got other stuff to do if you've got a small business, right? You know, there's nothing more valuable than your time. So why would you waste it on a trip to the post office when you don't have to, when there is Stamps.com? Stamps.com makes it easy to mail and ship right from your computer. Since 1998, the early days of the Internet, they have been on this thing for a long time, haven't they? Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly one million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices or you got a side hustle Etsy shop or you, you're a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. That's it. No special supplies, no special equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running. You're printing official postage for any letter, for any package, anywhere you want to send it. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from the USPS and from UPS as well. Once your mail's ready, it's easy. Schedule a pickup, drop it off if you wish. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shopping shoppingwithstamps.com because they have this new rate advisor tool. You can use it to compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option for you. You will save time. You will save money with Stamps.com, and you will never have to go to the post office again. No risk. With a special promo code, Ricochet, right? You get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. What a deal. And there's no long-term commitments or contracts either. It's great. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Ricochet to get a four-week trial plus free postage at a digital scale. We thank Stamps.com for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Stamps.com, promo code Ricochet. And now we welcome to the podcast Nathan Harden, education editor of Real Clear Politics. He's a musician, he's a writer, and a commentator on politics and culture, and the author of 2012's Sex and God at Yale, Porn, political correctness, and a good education gone bad. Follow him on Twitter if you would like at Nathan Harden. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. So, uh, start with your book came out, and uh, you know, look back at 2012. Aside from all the worrying about the Mayan andor or the Aztec predictions, at the end of the world, it kind of looks like a healthy on days right now. <laughs> uh, what are you? What were you seeing on campus back then that made you sound the alarm? And uh, has it gotten worse? Spoiler: Bet it's
2: gotten worse. <laughs> Yes, uh, in a word. So, you know, it's it's very interesting. It's been almost 10 years now since um, since Sex and God of Yale came out. And, you know, it was a pre Me Too uh, era. And there were there were many sort of, uh, you know, the sort of wild porn stars on campus things that were going on uh, then, uh, which seemed so out of place at this elite institution would probably not past muster um, today. Today, On the other hand, uh, the kind of censorship overall, the sense that, uh, you know, we're walking on constant eggshells with every different identity uh, group and what we can and can't say. Um, you know, the ability of a guy, for instance, like Dave Chappelle, to, to visit a place like Yale is probably much more limited than what it was. Right. Uh, so, yes, in that sense, uh, I think the climate on, on campus, we all sense, has gotten much more precarious when it comes to viewpoint diversity and free speech.
3: Right. In 2012, compared to today, it's like going to a weekend at, at, at Nero's Villa. Now it seems like the anti-sex league from 1984 has taken over, where supposedly everything's sex positive and everybody's all great with this new kaleidoscopic set of options, but nobody should do anything about it because there might be harm there might be lack right. of consent there might be misgenerated, all the rest of it i i can't think of a of a generation that considers itself to be so in tune truly with the dionysian nature of life and yet does absolutely nothing about it except scurry back to the little cubby holes and uh, you know, and perform some onanistic act
0: to uh, <laughs> well, I know that's a picture right Indiana there. Well, uh, yeah. uh, so, oh, sorry, so, Nathan, you, you uh, Real Clear uh, politics, you're the education center for Real Clear Politics, and you guys just have a Correct. new kind of survey.
2: Yeah, this is uh, it's really cool. We did this in partnership with the people at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual, Individual Rights and Education, um, great uh, First Amendment group, and it's the largest. Survey on the topic of free speech has ever been conducted over 37,000 students across 159 mm-hmm. colleges, and really, this is data-driven. You know, we we've obviously heard all the anecdotes right. uh, uh, about speakers being canceled or you know shouted down, but we wanted to put some hard data behind this. So this these rankings that we came up with this is like sort of the the First Amendment version of the U.S. News and World Report rankings you can actually see you know, where, where you're, you're more likely to be permitted to, to speak your mind or where you're more likely to encounter diverse points of view on campus. And it's all, by and large, coming from the students themselves. So we asked them things like, you know, how open are you to having a controversial liberal or conservative speaker on campus? We took that as a data right. point. How comfortable do you feel disagreeing with your professor? All that into a numerical score uh, that we use – for that we hope students and parents will go to and actually use as a piece so of information them, when they're oh, – select- sure. So you rank
0: by university, so you rank by colleges, but also the, some disturbing, like, poll number, you know, responses for me anyway. Um, 80 yeah. percent say they self-censor. 80 percent? I mean, I – yeah, at least some of the time. And I guess what I'd say is like uh, what I've always heard from college kids is that, oh, you know, you see the pictures of the crazy kids. That's always a small percentage. The rest of us are just going to class. But this poll mm-hmm. suggests – this the 80% suggests that the rest of them are just going to class and keeping their head down and not raising their hand and simply censoring themselves.
2: Yeah. I think it's important, too, to look at this as a problem that goes beyond our colleges. Yeah. These students are coming in with a very fearful mindset. You know, it starts on in social media. Uh, these, the, and this is what people like Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt mm-hmm. have written about: some the this sort of in growing fragility of mind uh, of the younger generation, um, where words are now considered harmful. Words are <laughs> okay. violence. Um, okay. Yeah. They. And
1: yet, ironically. ironically yeah.
2: Two thirds say that it is acceptable to shout down, and one in four, almost one in four, say it is acceptable to use actual physical violence to stop unwanted campaigns. I got to say,
0: when I read that, at first I was like shocked. Like, oh my God. But yeah. then I thought, well, wait a minute. I mean, that's not that different from the way it was in 1968, surely. What's the difference, I, thought, I asked myself, between 1968 and today? You have this – I, yeah, I don't think it's the same number. Yeah. You have very close to the same number of undergraduates who think they should be break stuff and sit in and, and throw Molotov cocktails and riot. The difference is that this, in 2021, the faculty and the administration agrees with them. Is there anybody at, I don't know, our alma mater, Yale, say – Standing up for the institution of Yale? It seems like everybody at Yale, even the people getting a salary from Yale, are ready to tear it down.
2: Well, there's, there's Nicholas Christakis, right, right, right. Um, uh, who famously was the victim of one of these uh, mobs a few years ago. I think there's a growing sense, even among you know, the, the sort of old guard liberals at elite institutions, that, that we're in trouble and you see more of them uh, standing up. But a lot of them, are, you know, a lot of them, frankly, are afraid of losing their right. jobs. You know, the idea that a tenured professor uh, can get fired. I mean, we just saw this guy at the University of Michigan who's lost his uh, – who's not teaching anymore because right. he showed Othello, right, right uh, in, in class. So I don't think – he, he showed uh, Othello,
0: think, not the James Earl
2: Jones version. He showed the Lawrence Olivia right. The, uh, in Maine. Right. Right. Um, you know, there's just a growing sense of fear that, hey, and and Jonathan Haidt said this to me a couple of years ago, I no longer have as interesting of classes. I no longer bring up the challenging questions right. that I might have five or ten years ago because, you know, I, I just can't trust that that's not going to lead to, you know, one of these biased reporting com- committees and another right. controversy. It's not worth it.
3: The uh, students are there to educate the professors now. Yeah. The students are the, the students are the red guards who are there to imprint upon their better their you know the old guards that you cannot say this. I mean, the idea somehow I, I I don't know when you guys went to Yale. I was going to the University of Minnesota in the eighties. The idea somehow well, the that that I'm going to wa- Yes. <laughs> okay. That I'm going to walk around campus like this raw flayed nerve in fear of being a, you know yeah. finding a fence somewhere is what it seems to be. I mean, the, the, the decline of intellectual activity, uh, intellectual curiosity cripples all of these institutions. Now, you talk about how there's this inertia in the bureaucracy because they don't want to get their, lose their job. They don't want to you know, sacrifice the tenor and the rest of it. But they basically kind of agree with these people. They just regard – they just think they're a little too far. How does this come back? Does it come back?
2: Well, some people are saying, right, these institutions are lost. Other people think, no, you know, I tend to be more of the kind that you can't give up this ground uh, without a fight. Uh, You have to uh, try to resist uh, the the spirit of the age, which is to, um, uh, you know, to explain to students why free speech is Mm -hmm. important. And I think there's evidence in our rankings, actually, that when the administration stands up and makes free speech a priority, explains to students why having constructive and civil disagreement is important, it makes a huge impact on how these schools rank places like the university of Chicago, who's famous for its Chicago statement on free speech. They send a clear message so that even conservatives who go there, and it's a very liberal institution overall, even conservatives who go there say that they feel relatively comfortable expressing themselves. Hmm. But, um, if this, if the administration takes a passive attitude, they don't stand up for this. They don't explain to students why it's protected, why it's important. Uh, it's not going to be a good picture uh, for them. So we think that this is these rankings also serve as a indicator for those leaders on campus, both professors and administrators, that you know, you, if you have work to do, uh, here's the evidence.
0: That. Well, I was going to say that you know part of the problem, of course, is I mean, look, it's terrible. You can't show um, Lawrence Olivier's Othello, all that stuff. I guess I'm more worried on the chilling effect on science and research, right? Because that ultimately mm-hmm. is the you know right. we'll 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 all be fine if we don't see Lawrence Olivier's Othello. That's we'll live. You know, it's not <laughs> great. It's you know, but yeah. um, well, what happens when that? You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and there are, there, there's the right way to think about it and the wrong way to think about it. There's the right way to right. look at the research on um, virus transmission and the wrong way. Um, and um, if you're – somehow you're un- unlucky in science and you have scientific evidence and research and an intellect that says – points you to the wrong way, officially, the culturally wrong way, how much trouble are you in? If you're a tenured professor at a big university and you are saying things about COVID that are undeniably true but nobody wants to hear. I mean, that to me, I'm a little bit worried right. about that than I am about fellow.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a client uh, climate scientist who was just canceled at MIT, was going give to a, give a guest lecture there, uh, only because of his views on affirmative action and college right. admissions, right? It right. had no, nothing to do whatsoever with his views on science or climate change. That was an have I've seen several uh, well-known liberal writers actually saying, you know, this is a this is a new kind of cancellation that's actually had nothing to do with, with <laughs> a new kind of, the
0: bad kind of cancellation. Uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> right. This is the yeah, bad right. kind. Yes. Uh, they're suddenly realizing, wow, you know, they're coming for us, too, now. And, and I do think one of the things we may see is that, uh, you know, the various intersectional, uh, you know, uh, Confederate nations of uh, within progressivism right. may begin to turn on one another. But can I, can and, I just be cynical
0: uh, for a minute? Just for a second. Sure. A
2: huge part
0: of college for a long time has been freedom from parents partying. I mean, that's what frats are, but keg stands, right? That's been a big part of college. Been part of the culture of college, part of the popular culture, understanding of college. The other part has been yeah. simple careerism. You, I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, mm-hmm. It's in a good way. You go to college and no. you learn a thing, and then you get, and then your parents who didn't do the, go to college and they don't know the thing, then you get to be the lawyer, you get to be the scientist, or the doctor, or the lawyer, whatever it is, right? Right. And then a certain amount of it has been simple prestige credentialing, right? Oh, I went to Yale, right. uh, so I met right. people who now, uh, you know, are my friends who are powerful, right? That, and maybe number four, number five was, uh, you know, I read Chaucer, I my my brain expanded. I'm mean, maybe four or five. I'm not cri- criticizing. I'm saying that's the way it was. So if I'm a parent sure. now and I'm li- reading about, it and I read you, even your list, which it does have some bright spots in it, um, why go? Why spend the money? If I had hundred grand for my kid, like I don't know, take a lot of classes at community college and learn a something serious, and then travel, and then and then keep fifty grand to move to a city and get yourself started. I mean, like, why wouldn't you? Like, what, what what's the? I don't mean what's the idealistic argument for college. What's the practical mm-hmm. argument for college in twenty twenty one?
2: Well, I, I think there's a growing suspicion among many people uh, that, that the cost isn't worth it, uh, partly because they see um, that it's driven, uh, it's drifting more and more away from that ideal right. that, you, that you that you pointed out. Um, you know, and there's there's now a growing sense that there are other pathways. You know, just as, this is sort of a triggering thing to say, but you can learn to code. Right. Uh, <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh,
3: right. we, we just got knocked out. <laughs> Sorry. Just,
2: that. Um, and why you don't you you know famously uh, you can you can become a tech titan uh, by dropping out of these elite colleges if you want to follow the Zuckerberg Gates model. So um, I think that the the sense of uh, it being a safe path to sort of prestige is still very powerful, especially Thanks. these elite institutions. Um, you know, I certainly participated in that uh, in my own way, so uh, I don't I don't think that it, it's going away, but I think if you're spending $200,000 for maybe, um, you know, a, a kind of mid-tier institution, and you can look at all these other very uh, plausible pathways. If I had a kid who was great with computers and, and, and coding, I think I would just tell him, yeah, you know, you don't need yeah. this. Um and you raise a great point too about just about speaking of technical issues, the science angle. Um, you know, another big issue that I've that I've seen coming up is that, that that these political correct uh, limits on research are, are dangerous. Is in the area of gender because we're not allowed to talk about biological sex differences right. anymore. This goes to mm-hmm. a lot of, of issues in medical research, um, and and scientific research. So we are getting to that place where you know um it, the the sort of liberal uh stranglehold on science which is the, has kind of been their religion for the last 30 years it's now suspect as well and there's a, there's a newer right. uh, religion that superseded that and it comes to, down to identity politics and yet
0: would you ever go to a doctor who thought that sex differences don't exist like why would you go to that doctor i mean i don't th- i don't think no. even the people no. holding signs at the Netflix uh, trans rally, would, would, they'd still rather go to a you doctor who believe understands do- how the human body works. You may not believe it. Your doctor may not believe it, but you you will be required to say right. these things
3: right. in public right? Isn't that right. where we're going? I mean, and it's not just, I mean, when you mention the science, it's not just gender. It's also climate. It's also math. It's also, I mean, if you have institutions that actually entertain for a second somebody who is talking about destroying Western paradigms of mathematics because they regard, whatever, because it was a participant in colonialism right. and has to be deplatformed or de-emphasized. De- de- if, if, if these institutions go along with this, they deserve everything that they get when it comes to reducing their authority and the authority of those like them. I mean, so maybe it's, if it's, you know, I hate to say the, the colleges are lost, but I think it'll take another generation before finally the accreditation means nothing, the assumption of, co- of the assumption of intellectual competence means nothing, and people start to use other criteria. Um, and I say that as somebody you know, who just wandered around the University of Minnesota for seven years and didn't really
2: do it. Uh, <laughs> I was on the hey. six-year plan, personally. Yes, right. <laughs> That's the deluxe plan. We um, yeah. <laughs> have
3: to run, but there's so much in the subject, I'm sure we'll have you back again. So, right Yeah, the it's book. a great study. I say, it's there right there. We'll, we'll,
0: we'll put a link yeah. to it in the, in the notes here, but also uh, Real Clear Politics, right. the uh, education section. Well, Real Clear cool Politics in general is fantastic, but uh, your section, especially right now, um, is uh, kind of front and center, right?
2: Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. It was a great talk. Hey, you.
3: Nathan Harden, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. You know, it, here's here's the deal. Um, you know, when I mentioned, when he said learn to code, which is which is hate speech, it'll get you knocked off Twitter or something. And you think, is there any way around this? Well, there kind of sort of is, um, but there isn't. What am I talking about? Well, you may think, oh, I don't have to worry about anybody looking at me when I go on the internet. I use incognito mode or private browsing, as we call it in Safari. Ha! Do you ever look at the fine print that appears when you start browsing in your incognito mode? It says your activity might still be visible to your employer, your school, or your Internet service provider. How can I call that incognito now? To really stop people from seeing the sites you visit, you need to do what we do here and use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you've used Wi-Fi at the coffee shop. I shudder to think. A hotel. uh, You know, the Wi-Fi there is probably as clean as a comforter. Or even at your parents' house, you know? With ExpressVPN... Well, every site you visit is going to be truly incognito. If you don't use ExpressVPN, every site you visit could be logged by the administration of that network. And that's still true even if you're in that secret private browsing mode. I mean, do you really want your parents to see what you've been looking at? Eh. What's more, your Internet home provider can also see and record your browsing data. And in the U.S., they are legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers. Now, yes, again, I've just pronounced data two different ways. That's because, you know, Express ExpressVPN, it's an app. It encrypts all of your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that your private online activity stays just that, private. ExpressVPN, it works with all your devices. It's super easy to use. The app literally has one button. You tap it, you connect it, and your browsing activity is secure from prying eyes. Stop letting strangers invade your online privacy for 6 Go to expressvpn.com slash ricochet to protect yourself. Use the link expressvpn.com slash ricochet to get three... Extra months free. How about that? That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Ricochet to learn more. And our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. You know, uh, Rob, back to college. And I love how people who are in the process of sort of disparaging the, the Yale thing
0: uh, kind of have to mention that. You
2: know, yeah, I, know, I mean,
0: I, you know, I, I disparage <laughs> it, anyway. I went to, by the way. I did go to <laughs> Yale. I was I'm a Yaley. Uh, I don't know I, know I mentioned it. that. The
3: University of Minnesota, the, the best, the, the best, you know, yeah.
0: the, uh, you usually tell me if said, like, the, they the, say the, it like, I went to Yale, like, have you heard of it?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's if they're a, uh, one of those people who is
0: cursed by the modern, uh, awkward inflection thing, but it also right it's there. more like, uh, you know, but, I don't want to say, like, definitively, because that sounds rude, like, I went to Yale, like, uh, no. uh yeah. Like I'm making a point. I went to I went to no, Yale. No, like you I'm, so, will, I'm so incredibly weirdly modest that no, I don't even know yeah, if you know, know, is, is this some is this a bell
3: You should yeah. not say that. We should not say that. It is the curse of a generation that does not want to say right. as if it believes. Yeah, they are going to have to end it with In that sense? sense. I went to Yale. I mean, I, I when I started to note that years ago from guys, I would I would back off and say, well, wait a minute, and uh, within their context, within their culture, it's a normal way of speaking. But uh, I still have to wonder whether or not it's born of this, 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 this hesitance to sound as if you're sure, right. because that somehow wipes away all the other possibilities of other people have. You can't be diverse and certain. Anyway, the University of Minnesota, where I went, has this great metaphor for modern education. It has a mall, classical mall, designed by Cass Gilbert. It's beautiful, Northrop Auditorium with its Roman everything's right. Roman. It's got the tall columns. Everything's red brick. Well, there were two spots at the end of the mall that they didn't build in the 20s, and they filled them in later. One in the 50s still looks like it belongs there, Uh, except the columns are now plasters. They're recessed, but they're fluted, and they're still columns in a sense. It's just a 50s... 50s right. reimagining of the classical ideal. Across from it is Kolthoff Hall, which is this 70s monstrosity. Nobody could designed anything good in the 70s except for the IDS building, but this one actually takes the portico, the columns, detaches it from hmm. the building, renders it into this stylistic object. It's almost postmodern right. and commentary, but at the same time, it's still connected to the architectural re- v- vernacular of the rest of the mall. So even the 70s piece and its rejection of classicism manages to find some connective tissue to the right. past. And what I love about that Okay. But I'm not done. The thing that they added to the mall at the end when they finally said, we got some space, let's put something in here, was a Klingon embassy of busted up plates inside an aluminum jiffy pop bag by Frank Gehry and it looks it's 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 a it's a museum that looks like it could be from any planet any culture anything it's like it's a Frank Gary building Great. it doesn't belong it doesn't belong and it was willfully gleefully put there i think because it, it was such an affront and a statement to the studied settled classicism of everything there which is what they are they want all the prestige that comes from inhabiting that institution and they want to they want to shatter it at the same time right make right, it their right. own and pretend that, that what they've inherited is so uh, anyway you were, you were uh, no, no, not you at all. I was just them saying them so that uh, speak, uh, what so I love
0: ahead. about the Roman stuff is that, um, it, <laughs> you know, meanwhile, the actual ancient Rome was sort of governed by crazy lunatic emperors and <laughs> a variety of, like, epiz- no, but, but it, it, it rep- rep- a, yeah. represents something, right? It, rep- it was supposed to represent, um, you know, classical inquiry and all the best things about it. Like, it, there was a time when you, if you said... I guess the theory is that you you uh, you're not I'm, we're not saying ancient Rome we're saying the ideals of eight what I, those ideals are worth striving for even though we fall short and I feel like a lot of, the, yeah, of the a lot of times not the not the crazy yeah, a lot of times we forget like it's okay to have an ideal and say okay I'm going to fall short of it I'm going to try to it and try to a- attain it and even if I don't it still doesn't make the ideal bad like I mean I guess what I'm saying is it's okay to have a statue of Thomas Jefferson in the um. New York City yes. uh, Hall, and to take it down because Thomas Jefferson, in your view, fell short of his own standards and your standards, seems to miss the point of a statue of a person. He's supposed to remind you not that, um, that slavery is an essential institution, but remind you that, um, well, I mean, free inquiry, um, you know, the, the, the best of us, the best of what you can be. And mm-hmm. I would say the same thing about the Roman, Roman columns. They don't remind us to be more like ancient Romans. They remind us to be more like our idea of ancient Romans, which is sort of robust and,
3: and the idea that the anci- the ideal that the ancient Romans had of themselves. I mean, even at the time where we say, oh, if only we had those great republic virtues as they did. They were saying to themselves, oh, if only we had <laughs> those great yeah, republic they, they, virtues. Those columns weren't Roman. Cultures,
0: they were Greek. You know?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I, yeah. I mean, so it's syncretic, yes. It's idealized, yes. But it's something to believe in. here in Minnesota, we were having a debate, or maybe we aren't, now that I think about it, about what to do with the Columbus statue. Columbus statue was pulled down during last year's oh, right. uh, excessive enthusiasm. And it was supposed to be put back up, but it isn't. But nobody knows what to do with it. And you know that whole uh, iconoclastic, literally, toppling of monuments makes me think back to what Matt was talking about at the beginning of the show. It is not. The right-wing counterculture that is doing this—these are not equal elements. The culture that is the most disruptive of the society that we know is not the right-wing culture. It is—I it, think it's fringy. I think it's obsessed with little details, but it hasn't coalesced into something that took down the statues and burned the, and burned the streets. Burned the buildings, spattered the attacked the White House, for God's sakes. We've forgotten about that attack from Lafayette Park. So I, I, I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong in sort of placing these in equal status as, as, as though they uh, they are equal. Fits. We do have two countercultures right now. But I think if you want to talk about a right counterculture, that would be the one that actually seeks some sort of return to tradition that isn't. Based in all the stuff that people talk about when they talk about the far right, right? I mean, do you yeah, see I mean, this? I, 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 the,
0: the the argument I have had with people on the right and people on the left is always, well, the, well they're, they're worse. And they, yeah, sure. I think I think they are yeah, worse because they they're they, they are everywhere and we're not. Every, and the right wing is not everywhere. I'm not really part of that, but right. they're, they're not everywhere. But uh, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it isn't it isn't something to be. Con- I, but I'm 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 certainly concerned about. From the people who generally share my world uh, political view. Like, I'm more concerned that those people, I, I find I have, I, I differ with them on one big issue that is really important to them, and I don't know why it's important. And so there are a whole Boy. lot of people who, uh, I think, like me, there are probably a whole lot of people who don't like me. Who probably, There are a whole lot of people who no longer listen to this podcast. There are a lot of people who quit ricochet because we differed on one oh, crucial aspect. And that, to me, uh, is like, it. it's, too, it's too bad. Um uh, the, the, what, I, what what worries me more is that I feel like the that there's a huge portion of the right that is beginning to act like a huge portion of the left, and I already lived through that. I went to college, and I went to you know I've been in the culture, and I don't I don't really want I don't really want to not have the, uh, a home, and I sometimes feel like I don't. So right. I understand I understand yeah, your point, I, I but you. I, just, I but it's different when it's the people that you it, it, a political science professor at Harvard or Yale cannot disappoint me. Uh, a, a, an activist with purple hair and a picket sign cannot disappoint me. I'm already there. I already expect to be disappointed. I didn't. I didn't. I was hoping that the people that I could, you know. See a bunch of people on my side who are still rational, and I'm. I sometimes I'm wondering about that, but that's just that's my journey, and that's not anybody else's.
3: Right, and you know what? Uh, there are people who differ from you who are not rational. There are people who look at you and believe that you exactly. are not rational. That's very well. true. Some of this can be empir- Some of this can be empirically proven to be uh, accurate. A lot of this, Matthew Continetti, some of the things that he believes are not rational. Yeah. In other words, yeah, yeah. It's just I'm I'm a big tent kind of guy. The only th- and and I. It's the only way we're going to win. What I can't stand is the idea that if you differ on this issue, you must be cast out, that we absolutely have to concentrate it down to the purest of the pure, and anybody who says that is just one to go. I guess here's what I mean. I mean,
0: like – this this is not what I mean. I want to say two things before we go. Uh, One sort of thing I'll say in a minute, and then the other thing I'll say right now. Um, When – last night, late last night, I got this uh, alert. uh, There was a death on a a set, a movie set. Alec Baldwin – was, uh, I had a prop gun, and as happens every now and then, um, not that often um, it was mis- in some way it 's murky what the what actually happened but what we know was someone died and someone got really seriously injured because he pulled the trigger of a prop gun um, and my instant urge there was to to have an opinion about it, and I do have an opinion about it, which yes. may make me sound like a jerk, but it may not. And one of my so and I've been like, okay, what what's the protocol here? Do you get to say your opinion? No, shut up. That's That's the the protocol. Shut up. Just just don't 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 say anything. I think that's the protocol. It's just wait. I mean, I mean, there'll be a time when I can share my opinion. I don't need to share it now about um, the problem with gun safety on movie sets, being that nobody on movie sets does anything about guns. Um, Everything. Wait, that was my thing. Right? We can wait. We,
3: we, <laughs> yeah. But we can wait on just yeah, about but all right. of this stuff. Just think, put yourself back in the mindset of somebody 30, 35 years ago who, upon reading something in the newspaper might. OK. And they have an opinion about it like right. you did. They have an instant opinion about what they just read. But they had in order to express it. They had to go find <laughs> a piece of paper, they had to find a pen, right. they had to find a pen that right. worked,
1: where and the, the pen didn't work did? because they ran yeah, out of they Yeah, like yelling ink. at
3: people. Was- so, they to, so, they had, right, so they had to go down to this Ben Franklin and get some ink, and then they come back, and they sit down, and then they had to write it and put it in the envelope if they had one, and then they had to find a stamp, and then they had to go to and mail it where it would be ignored and probably not put in the newspaper. Right. Now, of course, whatever idiocy springs to your tongue and your mind, it can be instantaneously disseminated. Right. And that's one of the reasons – and everything is poisonous because of it. I, too, had a variety of thoughts upon hearing this about Alec Baldwin. But as with most things, you just sort of – Yeah, I mean – You get calluses on the sides of your tongue. My, my view has nothing to do, do with Alec Baldwin
0: doing this it? Person. I don't have, it has nothing to do with him. It has just it has to do with movie sets and um, who's on them and – props. But anyway, uh, but I do have one opinion I'm happy to share. I'm not happy to share. I'm un- un- unhappy to share it, um, but I just, just learned it, uh, that uh, the gr- a great, great comic actor, very, very funny, talented guy, Peter Scolari, who you might remember, he is just oh, starred yes. in a, a TV sitcom called Bosom Buddies, which was not a success, but launched both his career but also the career of tom hanks and was funny in a lot of ways and i remember watching it and feeling like as i, I was watching it as a kid thinking like this is so sophisticated and hilarious you could not do that show now um then he was on uh, the newhart show the second um bob newhart show for i think almost like seven years maybe uh, uh very very funny and he's been a sort of journeyman actor ever since Incredibly talented guy um and uh, I worked with him once. We did a reunion show with Newhart and Judd Hirsch, and he came and he was so great and so funny, uh, and a lovely person. And he died. 60, he sixty died sixty six. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it was cancer, um, but um, that's sad. It's sad. He was he. But he, he was a. I can say this. I don't need to think about it. I don't need twenty four hours. He was a great great actor. a Really really talented guy. And um, I'm I'm really sorry that that uh, that he died. And that is how you do it. That is how you
3: express sentiments. <laughs> okay. um, anyway, learn. I'm learning. I'm um, learning. Yeah, now, you'd make it uh, anything but a, you know, a, a heartfelt salute to somebody in their passing. We now uh, heartfeltly salute everybody who's been listening to the show because we too are passing into the ether. Although we will be back next week. We would like to thank you for listening to our sponsors. They're a bunch of great people. Who are they? Well, let's remind ourselves, HumanN, Stamps.com, and ExpressVPN. Your life is better for supporting them, and we you know, we do okay as well. Take a minute if you would like to uh, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or Rob's going to start doing the member pitches again. Do I have to throw the whole dot over <laughs> <Yeah>. your head? <laughs> uh,
1: we
0: actually, and we really do need, if you're listening and you've been putting it off, Please don't put it off, um, uh, especially as we enter uh, the fourth quarter of uh, 2021. We actually really do need, um, we really do need uh, you to join.
3: <clears throat> Come join and disagree with us or agree. In either case, you'll be part of the the most fascinating, you know, the, the community in the web that you've been looking for ever since they plugged this thing in. I'm David Lilex. along, thanks, and we'll see everybody in the comments in Revolution 4.0 next week. Thank you.
1: Join the conversation. Fight the power! Fight the power
2: Hey, guys. I'm decidedly not dressed like I going to say, yeah, today, good so Lord. My apologies. Get her a load <laughs> my camo hoodie.
3: Camo hoodie is actually my favorite country western OnlyFans uh, actress, so we're going to go with that.